Hi, everybody. I'm Dr. Stephen Long. Welcome to The X Factor, the podcast for leaders by leaders. I know it's been a minute, but uh, for everybody out there, uh, Motair Consulting is now long training and research. I spent the first quarter of this year rebranding, so uh, I apologize for being somewhat dismissive of the podcast. But um, for, for that, we have a very special guest today. Uh, Lieutenant General Burt Field, which is, uh, in layman's term, is a three-star general, which is the second highest rank in the Air Force. And to uh, let people know how impressive that is, is that there's less than 50 uh, three-star generals uh, in the Air Force. So, Bert, uh, welcome to the X Factor, and thank you very much for, uh, for, for joining me today. Hey, thanks, Steve. It's really a pleasure to be here, and I appreciate the opportunity to chat with you and your listeners. My pleasure. So um, uh, for everybody out there, uh, uh, Lieutenant uh, Field, I'm sorry, Lieutenant General Field uh, started his uh, career in the Air Force as a fighter pilot. And as the, the listeners all know, we, we spend a lot of time talking about human performance and leadership. And uh, so far, uh, uh, General Field is probably the best person to speak about both. So we're going to start off with fighter pilot training because you know we've all seen uh you know top gun and the remake uh and you know hollywood does have a tendency to take some liberties uh but then again i'm sure it resembles partly of what real life is all about so let's start off with you know fighter pilot training or tell me tell me what exactly goes into that you bet steve well like you said, I spent the first part of my career flying, mostly just flying fighters. And um, to become a fighter pilot is a bit of a journey. And so mine started in 1974. I was a junior in high school and I was wondering what the heck I was going to do with my life. For some reason, as a junior in high school, I was thinking about that. Mm -hmm. And the only conclusion I had was that I didn't want to do something that was boring. My father had been a fighter pilot or was a fighter pilot. And, uh, but that was just what my dad did. So I don't know what your dad did. He could have been a doctor, dentist, a plumber or whatever. And your dad did that. My dad was a fighter pilot and let's go out and play basketball. Yeah. It was that much of an effect on me, but he did get the air force magazine every month. And one day when I was a junior, I looked down and it had a picture of an F-15, which was the brand new fighter of the day in the mid seventies going straight up. And for some reason, that struck me. And I remember thinking, that probably isn't boring. <laughs> so I went to my dad who, hey, my dad's a fighter pilot. He probably knows about this stuff. So I went over there, talked to him. And he, he did some research about how you do that in the mid-70s. And the only way you could get to be a fighter pilot in the mid-70s because of the drawdown after the Vietnam War was to be a graduate of the Air Force Academy or be a distinguished graduate from ROTC. Well, I live, we were moving to Florida at the time. My parents were Florida residents and he was retiring. And so I knew I was gonna be somewhere if I went to a civilian college in Florida. So probably the University of Florida because that's where the rest of my entire extended family went. Mm -hmm. And I thought University of Florida, ROTC, distinguished graduate, Burt Field, mm -hmm. no way. There's never going to happen. So I applied to the Air Force Academy and was fortunate enough to get in and then went through the, the 
four years there and graduated, still with this vision of being a fighter pilot. So after that, what you do is you go to undergraduate uh, pilot training. And to do that, you have to have the right qualifications physically. And so most of that was, was eyesight. But the other thing is making sure that you don't have any congenital problems, especially with your heart, blood pressure, things like that. So I was physically qualified and went off to uh, pilot training uh, shortly after I graduated from the academy. So the way that uh, pilots progress through the years is they go through undergraduate pilot training, then they get the their um, pick to go to a certain airplane. They go through training in that airplane, and then they go off to their assignments and progress from there. So in the in the 80s, and so I, I graduated from uh, UPT, undergraduate pilot training in 1980. In the 80s, you know, kind of rank ordered you, and the top guys, and it was only guys then, the top guys got their pick. Mm-hmm. Well, actually, that's not true. We were just starting to get women into pilot training at the time, but, but my class was all male. So the top guys got their pick, and it just kind of went down in order. Mm-hmm. So I did well enough in pilot training to uh, be picked to become a fighter pilot. And um, I was assigned to the F-16, which was brand new at the time. So the thing about pilot training and the reason that um, it takes, it takes a year to get through it, 11 months. And the reason that it takes so long is because as people, as humans, we are, we are two dimensional beings. We are, just two-dimensional, distance, width, and that's it. But in, you know, especially flying and especially in aero aero, uh, combat, it's a three-dimensional environment that you're operating in. So you have to learn how to think three-dimensionally, and then you have to learn to think with a fourth dimension in time, and I'll come back to that later because that's really a a factor in the fighter pilot world. So... how well you are able to transition into that three-dimensional thinking and how well you can make decisions fast so that you don't get yourself killed because that's a real possibility is kind of dictates how well you do in pilot training. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's a lot of factors to that. And it's like anything else is how much you study, how much you think about it. We used to call it chair flying. Uh, We call it visualization these days. Yeah. Um, and how and then how well you can take all of that and apply it in an airplane in a one hour and 15 minute sortie mm-hmm. and you're graded on every sortie here's the good here's the bad here's the ugly and then you go off to the next sortie or if it if the ugly outweighs the good and the bad then you repeat that sortie and you, you repeat that part of the uh, syllabus mm-hmm. so that's how how UPT goes. Well, we let, start me, let, me inter- let me interject yeah. just for a yeah. second, because uh, you said something really interesting. <laughs> uh, is the you know the constant feedback that you received? Uh, you know the good, the bad, the ugly, uh, and you know. So when when you say sortie, please please explain you know to everybody. Yeah. So a sortie is a is your flight. Okay. It's uh, it's so it's uh, if you're scheduled to go fly, um, and let's just advance into the fighter pilot world. A basic fighter maneuver sortie 
-hmm. or uh, air combat training sortie or some other mission, you're scheduled to fly that. Normally we, you, you know about it a week out, you know, and um, you plan for it and then you go in and the way it works is you plan for what you're going to do. You're told, you know what your mission is going to be. And so it doesn't matter whether you're in undergraduate pilot training or uh, in the fighter pilot world, you know, here's what we're going to try to accomplish on this mission. Then you go plan it. Then you brief it. So you've planned it and you planned it with the people you're going to go fly with. And so you've come up with all the things. And I'll talk about this a little later, but you plan it, then you brief it. And that takes anywhere from, uh, it takes about an hour. Then you go out to the airplanes and you pre-flight your airplane, you jump in and then from take the takeoff, go out and fly, do your thing and then come back. That's a sortie. Okay. So, and so the way we, way we do it in, in, um, flying world in the air force is you plan you brief so you got you know all the planning can uh condensed into an hour to make sure everybody understands what's going to happen who has what responsibilities you go fly it and then you come back and you debrief it mm -hmm. after action review it yeah and you do that on every sortie so in your experience how important was that you know that that periodic feedback that you got you know that you received after every every flight i will say that that is is what makes you good okay right. and it's also what makes you great yeah. and and without it you're not going to progress nearly as fast or nearly as far and um in preparation for this discussion with you you know one of the main things i was going to talk about was the debrief in the fighter pilot world yeah because it because i think it's so important well it is important because what the research shows is that human performance is predicated on feedback the quality of feedback and the timeliness of feedback so yeah. go go right ahead and okay so what that debrief is like yeah so let me let me just let me set the stage a little bit further Okay. So we go from UPT, you go and you learn how to fly, in my case, learn how to fly an F-16. That takes six months. And I'll just give you an overview of, of things. So that takes six months. And then you uh, move to your operational assignment. And normally, and back, I'll just use my experience, that was about a three-year assignment, uh, unless it was what we call a remote assignment, which is when you go away from your family, only the service member goes and you go away for a year. So in my case, I went to a place called Nellis Air Force Base. It's just outside of Las Vegas, Nevada. Mm -hmm. Spent my first three years there. Left there, went to uh, Korea, Kunsan, Korea, for one year on a remote assignment. And then came back to Nellis Air Force Base and spent the next five years there, two years in an operational assignment and three years at the Air Force at the time, Fighter Weapons School. And so the way that you progress through the fighter pilot ranks is you go through training, which is a transitional type of training, learning how to fly the F-16. Then you show up at your unit and they put you through a training program called mission qualification training, where they make sure that the new guy is going to be okay to go out and fly my airplanes, whoever my airplanes are, you know? Yeah. 
So then they, and then you are what we call a wingman and you will always fly in the fighter world. You are always with somebody. You don't, flying by yourself isn't something you do a lot of because we fight, we fight in teams. Mm -hmm. You're, you know, normally the basic unit is four airplanes, but it'll go up to hundreds of airplanes at a time. And so um, you have a flight lead and you have a wingman. And so you start off as a wingman, you get experience, then you become a flight lead. And then after you've been a flight lead, and if you're good enough at, you know, telling people how to fly airplanes, you can become an instructor pilot. Mm -hmm. And then what we do after that is we take, and if the person wants it, we take the best instructor pilots and we put them uh, through a course at the U.S. Fighter Weapons School in the 80s. Now we've changed it to the U.S. Weapons School because we've added a lot more of our systems and capabilities to that, uh, to that organization so that everybody gets the benefit of this great training. And the purpose of the Fighter Weapons School at the time was to produce the best instructors in the Air Force. And they would come back and they would teach instructors how to be better instructors. They would teach squadrons how to be better squadrons and, and go from there. So that, for me, you know, from wingman to flight lead was about a year and a half. Another year, I was an instructor pilot. I spent, uh, when I came back from Kunsan, so now I'm four years into being a fighter pilot, I went to the uh, fighter weapons school. It was a, a four-month program at the time. They've since gone to six months long. Um, and then came back to an operational squadron, was the what we call the weapons officer kind of running, making sure our IPs were teaching the right things or all the pilots were learning the right things. And, and then I went back and was an instructor at the Air Force Fighter Weapons School. And that was my first 10 years in the pilot training in the, as a fighter pilot. So what the way we train pilots is we train them through the variety of missions they may be tasked to do. And, and we start at the very basics. And it's aptly uh, called basic fighter maneuvers. And it's dogfighting 101, if you will. It's one airplane against one airplane. And there's very specific things you're trying to do. It's not rote memory. It's not perform this maneuver and then perform that maneuver. It's basically, we all start from the same setup. You're either on the offense with one on the defense, mm -hmm or you're on the defense with your other guy in the offense, mm -hmm. or you we call it head-on, and you start from that position. Just two airplanes, you against somebody else. Like a joust. Yeah, like a joust. <laughs> and then you go from there, there's two of us against one of you, two of us against two of you, two of us against four of you, four of us against four of you. And we learn how to, how to work with teams. We learn how to execute tactics, we learn how to react. The next thing for the F-16, because we have an air-to-ground uh, component of our mission, which means dropping bombs, we do the same thing there. We learn how the basics of bomb dropping, and then we put that into tactical scenarios, and we start with uh, two people, a flight lead and wingman, or an instructor and a wingman. Mm -hmm. and we go to four people, and then we go to multiples of four, and bigger, larger packages. 
And so to be successful at this kind of stuff, you have to spend a lot of time studying and a lot of times, a lot of time talking to people that are better than you. So it's how does your airplane work? All the systems inside that airplane, the electrics, the electronic, the avionic, the hydraulic, how do flight controls work? What happens when a system fails? What do you do then? How does all of this work? What happens if it fails um, dramatically and it becomes an emergency? How do you handle emergencies inside your own airplane and then inside your flight? So and then you have you're learning to think systemically. Yeah, and then you and it's a very systemic, literally systems, you know, study. Then you learn all the weapons that your airplane employs and how do you employ it. Then you learn about how do I work with a team member to employ weapons effectively so that we don't run out. Mm -hmm. They're a very valuable resource, those weapons, when you're flying a fighter in combat. Yeah. You don't want to be zero. Right. Winchester, as we call it. <laughs> and then you learn about what are the threats that you might face. Threats from the surface, threats from other aircraft. These days, there's threat, you know, all kinds of threat systems that are out there in the battle space. And then every day you go out and you train to something, some part of that. So back to the debrief part. So if we go out and we do, if you and I are doing a BFM sortie, basic fighter maneuvers, 1v1, mm -hmm. it's not a mono e mono contest. Mm -hmm. There's somebody is leading and somebody's learning. And you're trying to structure that that sortie so that the person learning is going to learn something. And when we're done with the prep, the brief, the flight, and the debrief, that person is better than when they started. That's the whole. It's not about let me go out and kick somebody's ass. That's not the objective. So, well, I'll take that back. We're dealing with fighter pilots, so it's often some people's objectives yeah at least one of them well if anything it sounds like a true meritocracy from the time that you're you're at the academy through pilot training and then through the you know the initial 10 years of your career is that you know only the best will advance right and you're talking about a group and so i've thought about this a lot and i know this will sound arrogant but these, these people are amazing human beings. They're incredibly talented. And um, people that, you know, like your average fighter pilot will progress to be an instructor pilot. Well, let, let me ask you this, because you bring up talent. And one of the things that I'm very interested in, and one of the things I try to do with clients, is disentangle luck from skill and talent. And so you mentioned talent, but you also mentioned the skill part as far as, you know, uh, get, getting the feedback, applying the feedback, studying, talking to people, right, getting around the best people possible, right, that all adds, adds to your skill. How do you identify talent? So like, you yeah. know, when I was a football coach, all right, bigger, faster, stronger, I can, I can see who's, who's the best athlete on the field. Right. And then we'll see if they can actually project to our level. But as a as a not just as a fighter pilot, but as any pilot, what are some of the things that you would look for as an instructor just to see 
you know, to identify baseline talent. Right. So as we go through these, all these training scenarios, um, there's a couple things that, that differentiate you from, from everybody else. Now, remember, we're talking about a, already a high bar. Right. Now, these folks are, are really, really good at what they do. Well, let me interject. They have, to, they have to keep passing every test. Yeah. I mean, just to get to the, the fighter pilot level, you have to outcompete everybody right. else in pilot school. Right. Yeah. So okay. I had I had in my my UPT class, my we had 60, 60 guys start. Mm -hmm. Um six. We had 10 fighters. Okay. In the class, okay, about ten. Yeah, so um, a we had three that went to the F fifteen and three that went to the F sixteen. Okay, we had uh, three that went to the F four and one that went to the F eleven. Okay, all right, and so, all right, so so, if that's the training, that's just to get that's just to get in the door. That's just to get in the door. <laughs> That's just to show up at that F-16 yeah. training. All right. So in terms of ambition, okay, and I don't use that word cavalierly or, you know, in, in a negative context, but, you know, really it comes down to purpose and drive, right? What, you know, when, when people, you know, who do all that work just to get in the door, what do you see, generally speaking, as their purpose and what their drive is? Well, I think, you know, people do this for a lot, you know, aim for this kind of career for a lot of different reasons. Mm -hmm. I'm just joining the military, you know, a off the cuff type of saying is you're either running to something or running from something. Mm -hmm. There's several people that there's a lot of people that join because out of love of country. Mm -hmm. But in my experience, you know, most people that that for me certainly it developed over time. It wasn't the overriding factor. I was running to mm -hmm. a fighter. Mm -hmm. That's why I entered it. And the reason I did that was because I thought that that would be an exciting way to spend my life. Yeah. No, no idea what that entailed. No idea how hard it would be, or any of the sacrifices, yeah. or how scary combat operations would yeah. be. Yeah. You know, if you know that kind of stuff when you're young, maybe you wouldn't run that that way. But, you know, young men, you know, and we'll talk teenagers as young men, we're not the smartest, you know, folks around. Yeah, judgment is certainly lacking, but you are certainly running towards excitement and adventure. But you're also running away from boredom. Right. That's true. And yeah. so I didn't want to want to do that. Yeah. And and what the that community and, and really any almost every career in aviation when you're flying it it's not there's always there's always something that could happen yes it's at the edge of your mind there's always something that could happen mm -hmm. and you're going to have to make the right decisions in order to survive and keep the people you're with alive yeah okay. so i'm not trying to be hyperbolic about that but it's no, always well you know sully uh, captain sullenberger you know, great example to the, to, to the country when he landed in the Hudson. You know, you, yeah. You know. And, and so that, that, I, I think that brings up that point I was making earlier, you know, as, as a pilot, you have to think in three dimensions, but you have to change your time component also. 
So for example, at in a in the fighter world, you're going 400 knots. Mm-hmm. Your opponents are going 400 knots. You're closing on each other at over a thousand miles an hour. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that margin of error is decreasing exponentially. Yeah. You're you're um you're when they're 20 miles away, you're less than a minute from being right next to them. Right. And so when in our early days in the early 80s, the F-16 radar that would detect these kind of threats out in front of us couldn't see much past 20 miles. Mm-hmm. You have to make all your decisions by the 10 mile point. Decisions meaning I know what's going on. I think we can execute our plan. I think we could win against these guys. Or we don't have that much situational awareness mm-hmm. and we need to run away and come up with a different thing. Yeah. That's 30 seconds. Yeah. So now if you have four people flying with you, that's four people that need to communicate effectively that we both, we all four understand what's going on in the battle space. We all four know what, what the plan is. We all four can go execute that plan. And we think we, that the risk that we're taking on is worth it and we can go win. Yeah, this is fascinating because psychologically speaking, this is what's called executive functions. And if you just tap, you know, your your forehead, that's your neocortex, and that's the area of your brain that controls, governs, and regulates goal-directed behavior. But it it, it includes things as organization, planning, uh, problem solving, uh, decision making. Right? It's it's really all about judgment. Right. And so to get people at a high level of executive functioning, working together, you know, those four people within that group who are going so fast, right, where, you know, it's it's almost, it's similar to hitting a baseball, you know, where the the ball is coming so quick, you got to make a decision in less than one-tenth of a second, whether you're going to swing or not. And then if you decide to swing, where are you going to swing? How are you going to swing? Right? And so, you know, your, your brain has been conditioned through all this training, right, to act, you know, used to be fast at a computer, or you know, but nowadays it's like a computer, yeah. <laughs> okay? Yeah. So, you know... T- so, so when you think of yourself as as a cadet at the Air Force Academy and how your brain was functioning, and then ten years into your career, which is really about fifteen years since you graduated high school, right? What were some of the the? I'm trying to find the right question here. Did you notice that you you know something happened to your brain in terms of how you process right. information? Right. So here's so one thing that that I'll just give you a good example. I don't know how when I tell you to go north and, you know, or go up that road and turn right and turn left or, hey, drive north for about 10 miles and then you go east. Most people think of it as in front of me, like I'm driving in the car. I think of it always from above. I have, it's, it's not a God's eye view, but it's like a view from above. Yeah. That's how my brain works now. It only thinks of directions as looking down. Yeah. Your brain actually works from the 30,000 foot view. Yeah. 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 
Yeah. Well, so, it's great to live here in Colorado, Colorado Springs particularly, right. because I know the mountains are always to the west. And for somebody who is directionally challenged as I am, it's a blessing. Yeah. So, <laughs> but the, uh, but you asked a question before we got off on, on my tangents and stuff about how do we evaluate people? So, yeah. um, so just imagine you're on your first one of these, mm-hmm. right? You're number four in this flight of four against four opponents. And now we've planned, we've known, here's the area that we're going to go fight in. Here's what that's going to look like from different perspectives. Here is what the threat is. Here's what they have on their airplane that could, you know, simulate it, kill us. What kind of weaponry and all that. Here's the tactics we think that they most likely will use to, to against us. And here's what we're going to do if they do tactic one, here's what we're going to do. If they do two, here's what they we're going to do. If they do three, here's the multiple things. Here's the, you know, the AFU plan, the all messed up plan. Yeah. Okay. Here's what we're going to do. Yeah. Here's what we're going to do. If, if I'm leading it and, and you're number three, Steve, I say, here's what we're going to do. If my radar quits on me, here's how we're going to operate. And you just go through, you know, the, Here's the threat. Here's what we think they're going to do against us. Here's our game plan. Here's the what ifs and how we're going to handle that. And here's the basic flow of what we're, the intent of what we're trying to do. And then we go and then we brief that in a much more condensed way. It's a very structured briefing that, you know, because recency is obviously important. Mm-hmm. And so you brief. You get up, you go get dressed, put on all your flight gear, and you go out to the airplane, you pre-flight it, and then you go and take off. So from the end of the debrief, um, you've probably got an hour before you take off. And then depending on how far away you're flying, you know, 15 minutes later, you're fighting. Wow. Okay. So, well, it's, it's then, interesting you know, that how you detail, you know, it, 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 how you teach each part. Right. And, and it forms a whole, and this is, you know, educationally, it's, it's the whole whole part teaching method, but it results in, in systemic thinking. It, it's very right. linear in how, we, in how we teach it, but the result from the student standpoint, the learner standpoint, is that they're able to synthesize the information within the system. Right. Yeah. And to, more to that point, your briefing will always start with, um, frankly, it always starts with the time hack to make sure everybody is on exactly the same time. Mm-hmm. As you, when you say, "Hey, we're going to do, we're going to walk out the door at seven thirty. You're walking out the door at seven thirty. Yeah. We're going to start engines at eight. You're starting engines at eight. Not starting engines at eight o'clock in five seconds. Right. Seven fifty nine and fifty seconds. You're yeah. starting at eight o'clock. It's all synchronized. Right. Yeah. Then you go into here's the mission today here's the objectives of the mission and here's our overview of what we're going to do mm-hmm. and now then you get into it yeah. so you have specific objectives you're trying to to get through you know and you know the overall because you're training for combat is kill and survive yeah what and are the- then specific things under that 
one of the best examples of synchronicity that I saw from you know, in, well, my, my time at the Air Force Academy is I attended one of the graduations and and you you, you probably did the, I, I doubt if it ever changed is that the moment that the cadets are commissioned as officers, they're already standing right, and saluting. And all the cadets, you know, about a thousand cadets, you know, who are now commissioned sec uh, second lieutenant officers in the United States Air Force, they all throw their white caps up into the sky. And at that same moment, four uh, F-16s, uh, I, I think they, I don't know what they are now, but, you know, the Thunderbirds, they're still, they're Thunderbird at, they're still yeah, um, flying over the front range over Falcon Stadium at that exact moment. Right. right. My goodness. I mean, that that is just impressive. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know how you guys do that. Yeah. So um, as an aside, you know, we the Air Force used to have these competitions, their bombing competitions for the whole Air Force, and and they called them gun smoke competitions. Mm -hmm. And um, so I, I was in a, two or three of those, and we actually won when I was leading one from uh, Hill Air Force Base in 93. But um, you one of the sorties you flew was a navigation attack type of thing, and you're you're you lost points if the bomb hit you know outside of three seconds yeah on your tot time on target yeah that's so it's not just be flying over it because you can do that with navigation techniques and gps and, and inertial navigation systems but you then you have to calculate the time to fall of the bomb and when you release it and that has to be pretty precise also yeah there, there's a lot going on yeah so tell me about the human performance aspect of being a fighter pilot. Yeah. So, um, so I just described this four V four type of thing. So let me give you an example of a two V four type of environment. Um, well, I was stationed in Ellis Air Force Base. It's my first assignment. Um, we had done two V two intercept type of thing, sortie. So, you know, I'm, putting my hands up far apart. We're 30 miles apart, pointing at each other and coming at, and the simulated threat does some kind of maneuvery thing. And we try to find them and intercept them and simulate attack them. But I hadn't been in a, in a environment that was more free, free flowing. We have in the air force, um, what we call aggressor squadrons. And these are uh, men and women that fly airplanes and they simulate um, enemy tactics. This is what the enemy that we think would do. And back in the 80s, it was the Soviet Union. So the aggressors would simulate Soviet Union tactics. So we ended up being um, temporarily down. My squadron was down at Luke Air Force Base, and we had one of these fighter weapons school instructors with me, with us, kind of teaching us. And the um, aggressor squadron was down there also, and we were flying against them. And I'm out in the arming area, which is where you get ready to take off. And right before you get on the runway, they check your airplane for the last time and make sure everything's good to go. And the four aggressors were over there. And I'm flying with that fighter weapons school instructor. And he was telling me some things. And we took off. And you, you say, you know, um, you know, Viper 1's ready. Gomer one's ready. 
okay, fights on, fights on. That starts the fight over the radio. Okay. So after that, it was like, excuse my language, but holy shit, <laughs> there's a lot going on. I have no idea what's going on. Holy cow. Okay, knock it off, knock it off. It's all over. That's about what it seemed like to me. Yeah, the first time. Lieutenant Field, you know, I was pretty good at what I did as yeah. lieutenant, but I'm like, holy cow. Yeah. All of a sudden they came out. It was fine. I saw the first group at 20 miles. Then they were at 15 miles. Then I see the second group. Then the first group is at 10 miles. Then holy cow, we got to do this. And oh, there's there. We're already at the first. There, the other guys are coming. Oh, what, what, what? Good, good. Yeah. The, it was like that. Yeah. The the pro the information was was not being processed in an efficient. It was not because it was so fast. If you've ever been in a fight, mm -hmm. um, the first time you're in a fight, it's scary, yeah. and you don't know what you're doing, and you just kind of flail around. Mm -hmm. and the only way you get better is by doing more of it. Yeah, exactly. And this is and so it's like a quarterback. It's like an NFL quarterback. You can't you're not going to learn by sitting on the bench. No, you're not. So we went back in and, you know, we the thing that we have in, in was revolutionary at the time. in The F-16 was these the video cassette recorders. So you rec could record all of this. So you go back and review these tapes, we call them review the tapes and it shows what you should see on your radar scope and it shows what you should see out the front of your airplane. And then the, the guy I was flying with could take our two tapes and he could reconstruct what happened. And he would, he could figure out, here's what I think happened. Then we bring the uh, four aggressor pilots in and aggressor pilots are all highly trained. They're all, you know, experienced. They've been fighter pilots for five to seven years before they become aggressor pilots. So they're all really good. And then they go through specialized training and they're even better. So um, I have, it's five highly experienced, really good air-to-air um, -air fighter pilots and me. Mm -hmm. And that's the kind of learning experience that happens. And they reconstruct, here's what happened. Here's where you should have seen this. Here's where you should have seen this. Instead of saying, la, 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 you should have said Viper 2 contact, you know, mm -hmm. bullseye 270 for 10, two ship or something like that. And here's the way we talk. Here's how you should have talked. Here's how the best way to communicate. You said this. No, you should have said that. Here's where you should have been in position relative to my airplane. Here's where you should have been in position. Here's you attacked the wrong. You should have attacked the trailer, not the leader of that formation that you were attacking. And we just go through the debrief in a very structured, logical way. Mm -hmm. And back in the eighties, um, we used to have a phrase, you know, the fighter pilot debrief was harsh, but unfair. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> so it was no holds barred. Right. And you spent probably, regardless of how the flight went, you probably spent, if you were lucky, 10 to 15 minutes on what went right mm -hmm. and then 45 minutes to two hours on what went wrong. Yeah. And, and that, you repeated it over and over again and you're hammering in those points. Yeah. And so those debriefs, those, so they're very structured. So we go in and we say, here's what the game plan was. Here's what they did. Here's how we should have 
based on the briefing and the game plan, here's how we should have executed our tactic. Mm -hmm. Here's what we really did. So did we execute the game plan or not? And then if we executed the game plan and everything went well, well, that's probably a good game plan. If we executed the game plan and it didn't go well, maybe we need to rethink the game plan. If we didn't execute the game plan, you know, that's bad because we didn't execute the game plan. That's number one. And then you ask, did it go well or did it not go well? Yeah. And you go through and you figure out all these lessons that you learn. And, and when you, in those debriefs, it's not just talking, you're taking notes. You're thinking this back because you you want to get better the next time you do that. Yeah, but that's always the question, you know, when when this when the mission fails, whatever that is, you know, was it the strategy? Was it a poor strategy, or was it right. the the people executing the strategy? Right. And where to assign? You know, where, where where to assign cause and effect on each one? But that process of getting that feedback is such a strong act of discipline that after you know, in the beginning, I'm sure it's a shock, but after a while. You know, it becomes second nature because, you know, the the, the thing is, Bert, it's not natural for us to seek feedback because uh, we're comfort seeking organisms and feedback automatically puts us in an uncomfortable situation. Right. And it's not most people aren't comfortable giving feedback. Yeah. Either. Yeah. And so then <clears throat> to make us both comfortable, you know, let's beat around the bush when it's sugarcoat things, because that's how we are normally. Mm -hmm. And in most organizations, that's what their culture is like. Right. But here's the question. But in the culture of the fighter pilot. Yeah. You're not trying to be normal. You want to be abnormal. That's not what it's like. Yeah. You need and, to be, you need, it's not that you want to be, you need to be abnormal because you've already gotten to this point. You are abnormal. You're so far at the end of the bell curve. And now you need to extend further right. into the tail of the bell curve and that's abnormal behavior so you have to demonstrate abnormal behavior and actually at a normal mindset to achieve that and i think you know over the decades and decades of we've been flying fighters this is how this culture evolved and and they're they realize that it does nobody any good to sugarcoat mistakes or to ignore them, or to not call them out. So when you go into from the mission planning part to the end of the debrief, there's no rank. There's no, hey, you're a lieutenant colonel and I'm a lieutenant. There's no, you're a major and I'm a captain. There's only who's the flight lead and who's the wingman. Mm -hmm. And what role do you play in this? And the flight lead debriefs. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the basic unit of the of the fighter of the air force is the squadron and depending on the size of it you know those squadrons can be have any let's say my early squadrons had 25 pilots in it mm -hmm. and there are a few there's about 30 or 40 people in there and if and you had a lieutenant colonel commanded that unit mm -hmm. hey if the lieutenant colonel was number two or number four or number three or whoever and he made mistakes, they were called out just the same as Lieutenant Fields were. 
So you and if he screwed something up, he got told he screwed something up. Yeah. So the hierarchy is maybe not eliminated, but it's, it's eliminated in in the eighties, seventies, sixties, fifties, forties. Yeah. It was eliminated. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I now, think. I would say that, you know, just because you were probably a little nicer to your squadron commander than to Lieutenant Field, mm -hmm. but not much. Mm -hmm. And that way you and it was more in your delivery than in your substance. I see. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. So. When you mentioned, you know, the first time you went out there, you know, it, it was just too fast. Right. And you weren't processing the information. That leads me to believe that you were thinking too much. Well, you weren't just reacting. As so, later on in your career, where things just came naturally. So I, I that might be one way to look at it. Another because I haven't thought about it a lot, but I think the other part is that I wasn't handling the stressful situation very well. Mm -hmm. I was letting the stress and what was going on inside my body overcome my conscious mind. Yeah. And I wasn't thinking enough. Mm -hmm. So okay. later on, you know, as, as we hit these scenarios and these, these problems, as I learned skills and learned how to interpret a radar at a glance, yeah. you know, not because... I'm not thinking about it. It's because I spent so much time thinking about it, so much time reviewing tapes, so much time talking to people about how do you interpret this radar scope that I was able to do that much faster than when I hit, hit the merge with those four uh, aggressors when I was a lieutenant. Yeah. So I could do all of that faster. I could, I could interpret it faster. Therefore, I could talk at the appropriate time in the brevity that was required by the situation. Because again, you don't wanna have somebody talking on the radio to communicate to you what's going on over a 10 mile period as you're flying at 400 knots down to me. So, oh, you know, how many flight hours did it take you, you know, from that first experience to actually go up there and just trust yourself, trust your training, trust your talent and just let it happen? Um, well, you, I'm trying to think probably 200. Okay. All right. So there was a significant amount of, of, uh, of training. Yeah. And, right. and I'm glad you said 200 because it goes against Malcolm Gladwell's 10,000 hour rule, which I, you know, which is. Oh, 10,000 rep, 10, repetitions. Yeah. Yeah, but that's been debunked. It's, that's just a random number. But two hundred hours, uh, you know, and 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 it's different for everybody. And it's different for every uh, for every occupation. But tell me about, you know, what that's like to just go up and trust yourself. Yeah. Well, so uh, I will tell you that um, after. Let me tell you a story before that, so I I can get you to the place we're going. <laughs> So my squadron commander back then was a guy named Tiny West. And Tiny West was 6'5 and weighed about 280. He was an <laughs> offensive lineman from Florida State. Okay. 
is a Vietnam vet. You know, he'd flown F-100s in Vietnam. He'd flown A-7s. He was in the F-16. He was, you know, fighter weapon school graduate. He was really good. Mm -hmm. And um, so for some reason, you know, I ended up on a schedule with him on Fridays with flying basic fighter maneuvers, just 1v1 mm -hmm. basic fighter maneuver. And he would kick the crap out of me every Friday. Okay. And then we'd be brief and he'd tell me how he kicked the crap out of me every Friday. Mm -hmm. That went on for about four weeks. So it's only four, four sorties. Mm -hmm. But I spent a lot of time before those sorties thinking about it, reviewing those tapes, talking to people, and he still kept kicking the crap out of me. Mm -hmm. Well, I lived at Nellis Air Force Base. And on Nellis Air Force Base, we had the units that I was assigned to, which was an operational wing, which is a combat-coded, we could go be sent off to war. That That's what that operational wing did. But also on Nellis Air Force Base was another, was where the Fighter Weapons School is located, where they taught advanced and best instructors, best techniques. And this other test unit that was an operational test unit that had people that were testing the cutting edge weapons and tactics. And there was a guy that was famous back then named Joe Bob Phillips. And Joe Bob was a legend in the F-16 community, great fighter pilot, Vietnam, all these kind of things. And just, he was, the, he was the best. Okay. And he was in this operational test and train test and evaluation squadron. And I went down there after the fourth time, tiny had kicked my butt and I walked into the squadron. Now remember, these are the best pilots in the air force. Yeah, the best now the weapon school would argue, they would say they're the best, but and on any given day, each one was right. Okay the best in the air force yeah. and I'm a Lieutenant and there's a pecking order here <laughs> and lieutenants aren't even on the pecking order. <laughs> They're not even acknowledged. Right. So I walked in and it's Friday afternoon. And what happens on Friday afternoon is people normally meet, talk about the week. Here's what went good. Here's what went bad. Here's big lessons that were learned by us this week. Here's what's coming up in the future, blah, blah, blah. And then they go into the little bar in the squadron and start drinking beer. Mm -hmm. And I got there about the, just at the start drinking beer time in the 422 operational test and evaluation squadron. Okay. And I walked in the door and there was a guy standing there. I, I didn't know him. And I said, he looked at me and he said, what do you need? And I said, well, sir, I'm here to see Major Joe Bob Phillips. And he says, he kind of started laughing. And he says, really? Do you know Major Phillips? And I said, no, sir, I don't know him. He goes, oh, I got to see this. That's exactly what he said. So he goes, come on, I'll show you where Joe Bob is. So we walk back and he's sitting in a room with about five or six guys and they're talking about something. And Joe Bob's smoking a cigarette and drinking a beer. And the guy says, hey, Joe Bob, this lieutenant wants to talk to you. And Joe Bob looks at me and goes, oh, yeah. And I go, yes, sir, uh, Major Phillips. And he goes, what do you want to talk about? And I said, well, sir, I'm Lieutenant Burtfield, and um, I'm in the 430th Fighter Squadron down the street, and I work uh, for Tiny West. He's my squadron commander, and he keeps taking me out in BFM sorties and kicking my ass, and I'm getting really tired of it. I've heard you're the best fighter pilot on the base, and I want to learn from you. And every guy in there went dropped their jaws, and then all their heads turned toward Joe Bob just to see what how he would react. And he kind of, he was smoking a cigarette and he 
kind of blew out the smoke and he just looked at me for about 10 seconds. And I just looked back at him and he goes, okay. And then he reached into this drawer and pulled out about 10 or 15 those videotapes. Now at the time, we could barely have one down in our squadron. And he pulls out a random 15. Mm -hmm. And he goes, let's go back to the briefing room. And we went back there and he started showing me stuff. And he would, you know, and he says, come back next Friday. And so I went back there for probably about two or three months with him teaching me things. So let and me it's just, you've got to go search out who the best people are. If you want to be the best, then you've got to learn from them. Well, so let me ask you, because there's a train of thought out there that I do not agree with. Uh, is that, so um, Tiny is kicking your butt. Okay. And people would say, well, too much negative reinforcement is just going to demotivate people. Okay. And that wasn't your case. That actually motivated you to seek out even more feedback. Right. What was it within you that said, no, this is, you know, this tiny's not going to beat me. All right. I'm going to find a way to beat him, even though the only feedback I'm getting, the only evidence I'm getting is, is failure and negative feedback. Right. Well, I would say, um, first off, <clears throat> the feedback that I was getting from Tiny was negative per se, just because of the time, but, mm -hmm. but it wasn't personal. All right. So that's a difference. Right. So that's one thing. The second thing was, is, you know, I wrestled growing up. And the only way to get better at wrestling is to get your, your butt handed to you by a better wrestler. A better wrestler, yeah. That's the only way. You know, if you if you win all the time, well, first off, you're just not going to win all the time. You just get better by going up against people that are better than you and by training yeah. on, you know, takedowns and, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. So this is just how I I viewed it. I, I He was kicking my ass. I wasn't, I wasn't being able to get any better. And I was looking at this going to an expert like Joe Bob as being able to not go to a wrestling match with him, but work on my takedown or work on my escape or work on my reversal or work on whatever he was teaching me. I was using those as building blocks that I would hopefully put together when I went out and flew in the, in the, you know, my dad uh, was a high school wrestler and he was really good. He was a Long Island champ and he wrestled for a legendary coach. And I guess that's where I learned it is that if you want to get better, you got to go against better people because his team was so good. They would just win like 100 matches in a row. And the best competition they would routinely face was not during the matches, but in the wrestling. Right. Yeah. Right. So... So that's plus, you know, fire pilots are a bit competitive. Mm -hmm. A little bit. So we don't take losing lightly. And yeah. part of it's because, you know, we're we're not just training for the BFM sortie with Tiny. Mm -hmm. This is all built up to going into combat. Mm -hmm. Combat, you know, is the ultimate pass-fail environment. Right. And you don't want to be on the failing part. No. We used to say, look, it's one or zero. Mm -hmm. Pass, yeah. fail. And it's binary. 
it doesn't matter what kind of style points you have, doesn't matter anything else. You win or you lose, and then we'll talk about whatever else. Mm-hmm. Now, every combat you know, environment isn't like that. And every combat, every time you get into that environment, it's not that ultimate challenge. Mm-hmm. But you don't control when that is. Mm-hmm. The enemy has a vote. The environment could create present things to you that you have no control over and you didn't foresee or the intelligence wasn't right enough. And now you're into this environment where it's pass fail and it's the old, and you don't want to fail. Mm-hmm. So you're competitive and you know that what you're really training for is that, right? that environment where the ultimate pass fail environment where you have to win. Yeah. Not, not intra competition, but the extra external. Correct. This is all, this is all the training room. This is like your father's Mm -hmm. coach and his his wrestling team. Mm -hmm. This is the practice. Yeah. This isn't the real thing. This is how we're, we're training every day before the wrestling match. Yeah. You, but you bring up a really important point, uh, Bert, is that at the highest levels, is that the the most elite of performers, whether it's whether it's you know as a fighter pilot or in, in the corporate world, uh, in music, in athletics, right? There's a balance between competition and cooperation. Is that it's not competing all the time, trying to beat your internal rival. You're also you're also cooperating with them by sharing information, but also by doing your very best to beat them. So it brings the best out of them. So when you actually do go out into the field in any in anything, that you are the best prepared that you can possibly be. Yeah, and I was lucky enough at the time, Tiny had a unique way of, of looking at the world. And uh, one of the things he did was he brought in out of his, so there's 25 pilots, one of them is Tiny, one of them is his deputy, that we call him the operations officer. And then there's 23 other pilots. Mm-hmm. He brought in 12 lieutenants, brand new to the F-16. This was a brand new F-16 squadron anyway. We're, it was really at the very beginning of, of the F-16 coming into the Air Force. Mm-hmm. But having 12 brand new lieutenants out of 23 was unheard of and kind of hard to imagine by most people. And uh, but he thought he he was had been up at the same place we were training and he had met a lot of us and, and talked to all of our instructors up there. And he decided that that he could turn us into a great unit. And he did. And all of us learned that as competitive as we were, if we worked together as a team, mm-hmm. we would all be better if we worked against each other none of us would ever reach as far as we should. And sure. and that, and we all still to this day, sadly, those of us that are still alive, we still talk about that. And we talk about that lesson of being, trying to help each other, trying to, you know, make each other better, not trying to be ahead of each other, but trying to work together as a team, how, how that shaped us and made us more successful in our careers and more successful as fighter pilots. So when you guys get together in those reunions, what are some of the attributes that you see within each other and that you saw within each other back then? Well, I think, you know, one of the things is, is that 
we always had a, a, a goal we were working for. Now, in our case, as opposed to like your average business, uh, most of us were hoping it was unattainable, like to be successful in combat. We didn't really want to go to combat. Right. That'd be bad. Mm -hmm. But we knew that that was what we were working for. So we had a specific goal in mind. And that goal was we are going to go out there and destroy the enemy. Whatever he throws up against us, doesn't matter. We're going to take him out. So that was, you know, a on the tactical side, that was the goal that we were all working for. And to do that, we all had to be better than we were today. And I don't care what day that is. We just had to be better. And it brings uh, a couple things. Um, every day, you know, when I was in, in the 80s, when I was brushing my teeth and going to bed at night, I try to remember what did I do today to make me more lethal and survivable in combat? Mm -hmm. What did I do today to make me a better leader in combat? What did I do today that was going to make sure that I could bring the people I went into combat with home? Mm -hmm. Anybody can lead men and women into combat. Yeah. I want somebody that can lead them home from combat. Well, that's, you know, it just shows the importance of continuous improvement. It is. And, and you know, you're highly motivated because you know that you have from now until they call you and you don't know how long that is to get better. Yeah. And, yeah, and one of the things that, you know, that we that, that we found in research, but also through our, you know, my personal experience is that we're either getting better or we're getting worse. And the illusion is that we're staying the same. And so we have to constantly fight that, you know, that 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 force uh, that that we're stationary and actually start questioning the assumptions that 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 guide us. Right. So, well, am I getting better or am I getting worse? And either way, I still have to continually grow. You do. Yeah. Can I ask you a quick question? Sure. Can you hit pause? Yes, because, all right, we're back with uh, General Burt Field. So, uh, Burt, why, why don't you talk about that transition from the first one to the time that you could really just go up there and trust yourself? Right. So after you uh, <clears throat> go up and, and experience these kind of things and you're not satisfied your, with your performance, you do a lot of things. And I just told you the story about going down and talking to Joe Bob Phillips. And I would take those kind of discussions. I would take the the tapes that I flew and recorded for every mission and I would review and review and review them. And I would practice what I would say. And I would practice how fast can I interpret that radar? Why do I think this is what the threat is doing? Why do I think this is what's gonna, uh, what tactic we need to respond to? What do I say when I get both of those things firmly in my mind? How do I do that faster? How do I talk um, in a more brevity, it's what we called it, code, so that we could transmit the situational awareness and get it received? And then how do I take everything that the wingmen that I'm flying with are telling me, everything my systems are telling me, how do I synthesize that into situ to create situational awareness so that I can you know, operate inside this battle space. 
there was a fighter pilot named John Boyd, fifties uh, and sixties, uh, and he created the OODA loop: observe, orient, decide, and act. And um, that's just how you create situational awareness and how you make decisions. And then what are you going to do after you to make that decision a reality? And that's kind of what you're doing out there. You're observing this environment. You're orienting yourself within it, understanding what they're doing, what what uh, you need to do against them, making the decision on which way to go, and then acting on those decisions and repeating that faster and faster and faster. Mm-hmm. And I found that as you, like with everything, as you practice, as you visualize, as you repeat, you get better and better at it. And so I went through that training that I outlined before I went down to the to the fighter weapons school and graduated from there and came back and taught what I knew to the instructors and the flight leads and the wingmen of the squadron I went at to the point where you know I got selected to come back and be an instructor at the fighter weapons school and and later on in like 88 89 I was that fighter weapons school instructor with that lieutenant going out on his first two V4. (laughs) And I knew everything that was happening almost instantly, just because I had been in those dynamic environments. I had thought about them. I'd had those debriefs. I had failed and failed and failed again and repeatedly did not accept that failure as the way it was going to be and kept trying to better be better and better at my craft. Because as we said, the ultimate goal is being successful in combat and leading men and women home from combat. And so um, that's how you do it. You just practice and train and practice and train and keep doing it until it becomes second nature. And in this world, it does change the way you think and it changes how fast you think. And if you're not even, I mean, today, I couldn't do half of what I could do back then just because I'm not doing it. My brain doesn't have to work that fast anymore. I don't have to talk that way anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this ability to trust yourself just took less energy and really less focus than when you were trying to do it and rather than just letting it happen. But you know, you had to go through a process of learning. I, I, I'm very interested in, in hearing your perspective about just that trust mindset, which can occur fairly consistently once you, you know, once you, you know, uh, get all the training down and, and and you know how good you are and you have all that evidence, as opposed to those occurrences where you just had a peak experience. Yeah. What's, can, can you help the listeners understand the difference between those two mindsets or just experiences, if you will? Yeah, I think the, um, I, I, let me see if I can frame it in a little different way from my perspective, Steve, and see if I'm going to hit, hit the mark on your question. I like the term trust because it's so important in what I did for so long. Mm -hmm. And basically in my leadership philosophy, you know, trust is foundational in it. But it's so important in leading men and women in combat, especially in the fighter pilot world. So I used to say um, to people, when you're in the arming area that I described before, we've we've briefed, we've 
got our engine started. We taxied out to the end of the runway and we're ready to take off. When you're in that arming area and you look at the men and women you're flying with, you don't care what their job is. You don't care if they're a good squadron commander or not. You don't care if they're a good scheduler or not. You don't even care if they're a good mom or dad or not. You don't care about anything. Mm -hmm. You care about whether they are going to be able to execute and win on this sortie. That's the only thing you care about in that moment in time. And you know that we all have different capabilities and we're all on different parts of this journey. And so when I was early on, you know, that young lieutenant, I was in a cockpit saying, okay, just, you know, the fighter pilot prayer, God, please don't let me mess up. And it's not mess. Yeah. <laughs> That's not the right word. Right. Please don't let me mess up. Yeah. And I could control kind of what was in my cockpit. And I was trying to hang on to my flight lead. But when I was the flight lead and I was the instructor and then I was the weapons school instructor, I could see where all these people were in this journey because I had done it so many times and in such and at such high levels with such, you know, talented people both flying with me and against me so that I could look and see where people were on the journey. And I could see whether Lieutenant Field was number four of my four ship and what he was thinking. And I could see my new flight lead was number three. And he was saying, okay, I'm pretty good at this, but now I got to take care of Lieutenant Field out there. And I knew that was what he was thinking about. And I knew what my wingman, you know, she was highly experienced getting ready to be a flight lead. So I knew I didn't have to worry about her too much, but I knew that number three over there, Steve Long, good flight lead, but he's worried about Lieutenant Field over there. And so I could see that in my arming area and I could see who was focused and who wasn't. And then when I was up there and we were fights on and now we're stepping into the arena, into this battle space that is highly dynamic. It's going to happen really fast and things cannot go the way we planned them. And we're going to have to react to that. I knew where to put my emphasis, but I could now I could start thinking about all of these things and the threat, my forces and the threat, because I was so good at the basics. And one of the things that I always stressed, and this is true of any fighting art, you know, whether you're using an, an F-16, a pistol or a knife or your fist, is you got to practice the basics until you... You can't stand practicing the basics and then you got to do it about, you know, 400 times more. Yeah. <laughs> right. So that's, that's what enables you to be good at the basics and then be able to help people that are in this with you when they need it. And you know, who's going to need it the most. Yeah. And it seems, you know, just reading between your lines, Bert, is that empathy is such a crucial leadership skill oh is knowing what those three other people are going through at what degree uh, and at what level of development they're at yeah so there was never one sortie not one sortie ever that i flew that i didn't screw something up and there's not a sortie that i can remember just screwing one thing up mm -hmm. and something a bad radio call 
didn't remember to do this, said this at the wrong time, whatever it was. Mm -hmm. Now, and there's, you know, hundreds where I screwed it up multiple times, but there was never a day that I went into work think, saying, man, I, I'm going to screw up today just because I want to, yeah. just because that's going to be fun. And one of my leadership philosophies is people don't come up, come to work to do a bad job. Right. That's not how my going in position is. And I make mistakes every day. So I'm assuming everybody else makes mistakes every day, or I have this average guy philosophy. I'm right in the middle of the bell curve. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if I don't come to work every day, think, ready to screw up, I'm sure at least half the people, I assume everybody, but I know at least half the people are coming to work to screw up. Yeah. So why would I start from that premise as a leader mm -hmm. that you're, you're doing this because you're just a dumbass and you wanted to, yeah. Me to at you today. That's not that's not what happened. So I know they're doing their best. So what we need to do is get that best out of them because they're already pretty good. They're yeah. just not this experienced in this kind of environment. Mm -hmm. And the way you get better is to get into that environment and get your butt kicked. Yeah. And then think about it, learn the lessons think through the lessons and internalize those lessons and try it again. Yeah. It is our human nature that we want to be great. Right. We all want to be great at whatever we do. And leadership sets the culture. And if leadership sets a mediocre culture, then people will perform they'll, to those expectations. They'll rise to that level. That's all. Yeah, exactly. You're singing my song. That is 100%. To its own level. And whatever the leader sets the water at, that's where everybody else shoots for. Yeah. And, you know, this, this is the part about stress that people don't understand is that we seek stress. We need stress. And then it really comes down to us individual and how we want to perceive that stress is that you were looking for adventure and, and excitement. And so you saw, saw, you know, you perceived your stress as something that was going to lead you to th that this is all exciting and adventurous. This is right. cool, even though I'm scared half to death and I'm screwing up early on. But a lot of people are conditioned to think that stress is a negative thing. And then therefore they have to massage themselves and go sit in a corner and relax for 10 minutes. And right. That's the, and, and that's really only feeding the beast that's going right. to hold you back. And so I think that uh, I agree with the stress part. And I think, you know, when, when we're talking in this fighter pilot world, the stressful part is the, the, the flight, the sortie, the mission. Mm -hmm. That's the stressful part. Um, it could be stressful leading up to it. But when you go into the debrief, however the mission went, mm -hmm. I don't need to make this any more stressful per se. Mm -hmm. What I need to do is say, Let's see how we performed under that stress. Let's point out where we did well, and let's figure out where we could do better. Mm -hmm. Because the next time we're under stress, that's the whole point. Yeah. The next time we have to perform, how are we gonna make sure that we're better? Yeah. And that's my goal, not to point out how stupid this guy was or how bad she performed in, in the area out there, my goal is to make sure that the next time they do better than this time. Yeah, the, the Continue improving what you said before. Yeah, the, the point of feedback is not to 
personalize or dehumanize. So you right. depersonalize the feedback through education and information. Right. And, you know, I would tell you when you're in those environments, you it's good to think about these kind of things also. And we didn't do that a lot back then. You know, like I said, it was a harsh but unfair world. And that was the end of the debrief. It wasn't necessarily personal, mm -hmm. but it could be brutal. Mm -hmm. And as competitive as some folks are, you know, some people weren't that good at taking that. Yeah. You know? And so I, I hope I did better, but I'm sure that I, you know, led over into that too, as I was learning how to, how to teach and get these lessons across to folks to make this continuous improvement happen. Mm -hmm. And I don't know, I'm, I'm, my jury is still out on how well I did back then. Well, I would think, well, it, it is my assumption that the people, you know, that, that, that you were in the class with and some, you know, some are more talented than others. They're just born with a natural gift to, to fly and to see and, and react. Uh, but it was really the people who accepted, not only accepted, but sought feedback and then applied the feedback who actually rose above to become the best of the best. Right. You know, so talent becomes, is negated to a degree where skill is actually much more important. And by doing that, you eliminate luck from the success, uh, success uh, equation. Yeah. Yeah. You have to, you know, wherever luck has comes into play, you just need to be ready to take advantage of it. Yeah. And, and it will, but the whole idea is to minimize it as much right. as possible. You can't, you can't depend on that. You just have to be able to take advantage of situations that are provided to you. All right. Well, Bert, I want to thank you for all the time that you've given us. And I promise the listeners will bring back General Field to talk about leadership. Okay. Uh, so, yeah. So, Bert, uh, uh, thank you again. And uh, uh, listeners, thank you very much for listening to The X Factor. And we will see you all again next time.